On this week's prequel episode, we follow up on our Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society listener polls and preview Thunderbolt. Hello and welcome back to This Film is Lit, the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. It's another prequel episode. We have quite a bit of feedback and uh, some interesting stuff to talk about in our preview, so we'll get right into it with our patron shoutouts. I put up with you because your father and mother were our finest patrons, that's why. No new patrons this week, but we do have our Academy Award winners, and they are Vic Vicious. Matilde, Steve from Arizona, Paul, Jeff Niederhofer, Teresa Schwartz, Ian from Wine Country, Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Gratch, Just Gratch, Shelby Says Air Elemental Cycle Book 4 is out now, That Darn Skag, V Frank, and Alina Starkov. Thank you all for continuing to support us. We truly appreciate it. You're all the very best. Katie, let's see what people had to say about the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. On Patreon, we had two votes for the movie and one for the book. Um, We had one comment from Matilde who said... I'm having trouble streamlining my notes, so I'm going to go with random ramblings this time around. It's pretty much how my notes always go. I have a lot of love for both the book and the movie. Objectively, the book is better and deeper, but I still prefer the movie. I think it is neater, attains its objective more directly, and is just lovely. It quickly found a place in my comfort watch list, and that makes it beat the book for me. That I totally but Yeah, get. I, I, I totally get The comfort get that. watch thing, I was, as we were, like, once we finished it, I was like, I could totally see this being, I don't know if I would ever really be super interested in watching it again, as much mm-hmm. as I did enjoy it, but but I could see this being the kind of thing. It, it, it almost, and it does kind of have a little bit of a fallsy feel to it, I feel like. There's yeah. like some just kind of I don't know the rustic nature of yeah the, like the f- kind of farmsy rusticness of they're the, always wearing outer yeah wear. and they're like sweaters and yeah like he's got a what's uh what was his name uh he's got a weird name Dawsey is always wearing like he looks like Chris Evans in uh oh yeah he has his knives out has he's got perfectly his chunky slightly sweaters. unraveled chunky yeah. knits yeah yeah exactly it's a very it's a very comfy movie for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see that being a comfort movie in the same vein as like like the 2005 Pride and yes. Prejudice, that kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Matilde went on to say, like Katie, I prefer a journal to an exchange of letters for epistolary novels. I get that they probably wanted to avoid writing a book within a book, but the letters had a similar feel to them regardless of their author. So I found myself constantly going back to check Mm. who's writing. That is a really fair criticism that I did not think to bring up. And that can be tough. Yeah. Yeah. We talked about that in the Allegiant episode about the changing perspective Mm -hmm. and not feeling like it really the style of who was, you know, the voice of the character we were like in the head of wasn't didn't change enough. And yeah, with an epistolary novel where you're getting multiple different writers. Yeah. It would kind of need to feel distinctly different. I feel like. Yeah, Matilda went on to say, it takes you out of the story, which I also kind of agree with, yeah. Um, I appreciated the additional side stories and the depth they brought to the story. 
but when it went into more explicit details, it felt unexpected and jarring. Worthwhile, obviously. I've never shied away from the horrible details of the war, but since it was such a contrast to the atmosphere and the people on Guernsey, I found it hard to stomach. In particular, the two scenes where a cat is killed. Mm. They came out of nowhere to me, and as a cat mom, it was painful to read. On the other hand, I thought the way the movie stepped further away from the horrors of the war was a plus. The takeaway from the movie is more hopeful and about what a seed from one person can create, a family, love, and community. It is less profound, maybe, but more efficient and in line with the style the movie is aiming for. I think that that is a very succinct way of kind of getting at what I was trying to over the course of the episode when I was mm -hmm. defending the movie's choice to not kind of get into the the nitty gritty of the atrocities and and the, you know, how hor horrible everything was. Like I said, I, I can understand that being kind of a thing to criticize about the film, but I also think it makes the film more effective for it not having done that, which you agreed with too, to yeah. be fair, but uh, for the film, at least yeah. just liked what the book did. I'm really aligned with Brian's appreciation for the I'm as old as time line, Mark's reaction during the breakup and the proposal. Speaking of that proposal scene, I've wanted one like that in a romance since forever. It gives me that little stomach flip every time I see it. I absolutely adore it. It is great. <laughs> Women should propose in romances more often. They clearly get it done simply and beautifully. <laughs> Matthew Good did a very doing a very nice job with what was definitely a Stanley Tucci role. Yes, I definitely see it okay, too. Good. Glad I'm not the only one. <laughs> Actually, I love the whole cast. They have those timeless faces and features that make a period piece feel authentic. While the book gives us more in-text about the characters, I thought every actor brought a very tangible feel to their character, and you grow to love them fast just with the performance and their chemistry. Can't believe I didn't recognize the girl from the IT crowd. She's absolutely marvelous as Isola. And baby Kit Connor did great as Eli before blowing me away in Heartstopper. I won't push for Brian to watch the IT crowd. I got the message <laughs> loud and clear. But if you haven't yet, but if you haven't yet, you both should watch Heartstopper. I believe I've heard good things about Heartstopper, but I yeah. don't. Yeah. And I did. I think I actually did know that that was Kit Connor uh, or that I had heard of. I have not seen him in anything, but mm -hmm. I remember seeing him in the credits and being like, I've heard of this person. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's definitely something I would be interested in watching at some point. Mm -hmm. Back to the book. In it, I thought Mark was too simplistic and kind of the cliche American jerk. It was a disconnect with all the other well-rounded characters, as if they had forgotten to develop him. Glenn Powell is also too good an actor to not give him someone layered to portray. He did a fantastic job with fleshing Mark out. That kiss on the head and taking the champagne moment was chef's kiss. I think what I liked most about the movie was how delicate it is and how they suggest rather than tell. The atmosphere, the looks, the work of the actors brought me all that I needed to feel and understand. The story works very well in the book and it feels intimate, more so because letters are by their nature like confessions and introspective. But I appreciate that the movie didn't need to say a lot of it just to show it. And I got it from the performances and the overall mood. The part with Isola being a poor detective and the intrigue with the letters was a riot, but it could have been a little spin-off novella. Definitely would have cleared up the ending. P.S. 
I am so mad at you for making me realize that it's basically a Hallmark movie. I've watched it four times and somehow never caught on. Now I too won't be able to ignore it. <laughs> Sorry about that. Embrace it. Yeah, it's fine. You can enjoy yeah, Hallmark. Fine. Like we said, it's the it's the uh, it's the 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 platonic ideal of a Hallmark movie. Yes. <laughs> Um, and I had to include another comment that Mathilde left uh, on another Patreon post because we did talk about it in the episode. Yes. Um, she said, I think the controversial book you were thinking of would be For Such a Time from 2014. Even more problematic because it's about a Jewish woman converting to Christianity as she falls in love with a Nazi. Big yikes. So I will say I don't think that I mean, big yikes. Yes, I don't think that's what I'm thinking of. The thing that I'm thinking of was a, a big Twitter discourse like a year ago. And mm -hmm. I thought it was about an upcoming book at that time. Like, yeah. So I thought it was something very either like and I say a year ago, it could have been two or three years ago. But within the last like two or three years, I remember seeing this dust up on Twitter about some book. And it was all about and the dust up from my recollection was all over the like a blurb on like about an upcoming book. Like people hadn't even read the book yet. It was mm -hmm. literally just like a blurb about somebody falling in love with the not. I don't remember. Um, so I don't think this is it. It could be, but I don't think, cause again, I think it yeah. was a more like an upcoming. Are book. you sure? Um, you weren't because there, I remember something fairly recently about a romance novel, similar concept, but not a Nazi, but it was like a Confederate soldier. I could have swore this was a Nazi, but maybe it was a Confederate soldier. I could have, for some reason in my head, I really remember it being a Nazi, but maybe it was a Confederate soldier. I don't, I don't, mm -hmm. I don't recall. Like, specific, I don't 100%, I'm like 90% sure that it was a Nazi, but I could be wrong. Anyways. <laughs> we'll never know for we'll sure. We'll never know for sure. <laughs> um, over on Facebook, we had two votes for the movie and zero for the book. Um, Teresa, the, the patron who requested mm -hmm. this, uh, and also my mom, <laughs> said... Thank you for indulging me by discussing TGL and PPPS. It is a horrible long, horribly long yet charming title. To glaps. <laughs> to glaps. I hate that. I hate it. Thanks. <laughs> I, know, I hate yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, I saw the movie based on the recommendation of a dear friend, then later happened upon the book at an estate sale. Well, what a what a charming start to the story. It's like the movie. <laughs> You just happened upon the book at an estate sale. Did it have a name in it? And you ended up writing that personal letter. Uh, I watched the movie again last week after listening to your prequel, and I am currently skipping around rereading parts of the book. I love the spaciousness of a book, and this book in particular had some really wonderful characters that didn't make it into the movie, such as John Booker, a.k.a. Lord Tobias Penn Pierce, Adelaide Addison, Remy, and Sophie. Completely understandable and correct to limit the characters in the movie, but I think Juliet's letters to Sophie, her best friend slash Sydney's sister, reveal so much of Juliet's character. After all, there are many things one can reveal to a best friend that are not confided to others. Um, and then she has a, a quote from one of the letters here. Um, then Markham V. Reynolds stepped forward. He's dazzling. Not even the furnace man can compare. Letters to Sophie are also the conduit through which we see Juliet's growing feelings and sometimes confusion about Dawsey. Ordinarily, I'm not a huge fan of epistolary writing, but in this case, it was an effective way to let the story unfold and a great way to allow each character to reveal themselves. 
I'm old enough to have lived during a time when writing letters was still a fairly common way to keep in touch, especially with college friends when we were at our respective homes for the summer. Long-distance phone calls were expensive. Mm, mm. One summer, I wrote a letter to my boyfriend every day. Every day. Wow. <laughs> I pray to God those letters are lost for all time. <laughs> Having said that, I equally loved the movie, which I thought was well-written, adapted, and beautifully cast. I always enjoyed Matthew Good, great choice for Sydney, Lily James as a luminous Juliet, and I have a little snooker for Tom Courtenay, Eben, since I saw him in Quartet, which is another lovely movie. Uh, about the casting, I had this thought while we were watching the movie, and I wanted, because I was like, so the guy who plays Dozzy is mm-hmm. uh, probably most known as the second uh, Dario Naharis in Game of Thrones. Oh my God! Yes. Yeah. He's the second one. I think he's. The, I, yeah, think I think he's you're the right. second one. I can't. Or is the first one? Now I, I, I can't recall. He's one of the Dario Naharises yeah. in Game of Thrones because they recast that at one point. I think he's the second one. Um, but uh, I was like, I don't think this guy's British. Like, and and mm-hmm. and his accent. So that my only casting note. I think he does a lovely job in the role, and I think he does. He's great. His accent actually bothered me a little bit because it sounded. He's Dutch. Mm. And his English accent to me sounded, and now maybe the, the maybe his backstory in the universe of the thing is like he has Dutch ancestry or something, or his parents are I don't know, but his he didn't sound like the rest of the people in the movie <laughs> to me. Like he found sounded distinctly not like the rest of the people mm-hmm. in the movie, who I think are all just British. Uh, and so that was that stuck out to me a little bit. Not enough for to affect my overall yeah. enjoyment, but it was a little. Thin. Uh, I didn't notice that at all. Really? Um, but okay. I, I am. I rarely noticed. I'm famously not good at keying in <laughs> on when accents are bad. I am also usually very terrible at that. So it's actually like it was really surprising to me. That, and maybe it was influenced by the fact that I knew that in. Because I can't, he doesn't have a, I can't remember what, I guess he has kind of a British accent. And well, he's British Dutch, but I believe he was born in Holland or mm-hmm. I think he's Dutch. I can't remember. He's not from England. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, and to me, his accent sounded just slightly off for like, hmm. but again, I think it could make sense if maybe, again, it's not like it's that far. He maybe there's some, yeah, and family, whatever. I don't know. But that was, that was <laughs> one of my notes about the casting. I think you hit the nail on the head. The movie knows what it is and doesn't try to be more than that. It is a lovely romantic period piece. It has my favorite proposal of all time. Would you like to marry me? I'm in love with you, so I thought I'd ask. Sigh. <laughs> it is great. It's great. It's, it's great. great. I also loved the scene where Juliet breaks up with Mark. It is so real. He's so angry in the moment, but quickly returns to drop a kiss on her head and say goodbye. Very real, very human. This has turned into the mom and Matilde both (laughs) on the same page as me. This has turned into the longest post ever. So I'll conclude by saying that I voted for the movie, but I really can't choose. I may have to go back and vote again this time for the book. (laughs) So your mom voted twice. (laughs) Cheating. It will allow it. Thank you for my birthday episode. I so enjoyed listening. Fantastic. Thank you. Our other comment on Facebook was from Ian. Um, Ian said, back from the deep blue sea, Alaska has sketchy Wi-Fi, so wasn't able to keep up. 
Full disclosure, didn't read the book, didn't know it was a book, but saw this in cinemas when it came out. And despite what Brian thought, it's not it's not playing 24-7 on BBC or ITV. We enjoyed the film. It really hits home that despite the boast about how we haven't had a foreign power invade our lands since 1066, we forget about our outlying islands. Uh, British loves to forget about just some of those <laughs> island folk. There's very, very few films dealing with that, and definitely our Southern Isles should be remembered in that regard when the wolf pack was at our door. In regards to valet slash valet. I looked this up, so I have some notes, too. If okay. uh, I haven't read this com comment, so maybe they have more than I mm. do. But We go both ways, but back in Edwardian times, when it was exclusively used for manservant, the T was pronounced. So I imagine the older folks that remember good King Edward VII's Seventh, yeah, seventh reign would use that pronunciation. So, my, what I when I went and looked this up, that was my what I was able to glean is that in England, pronounced with the T mm -hmm. is in reference specifically to like a servant, like a manservant mm -hmm. or something, um, not a person, not a chauffeur, not a person who right. drives your car, and that the valet, as we refer to it, is all exclu almost exclusively refers to people parking cars essentially. Right. Uh, and I believe England may also use it that way, but valet, valet is like the manservant. Okay. So it's a slightly different definition. Yeah, yeah, for the a little bit different. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, clearly, like one came from the other, I would assume. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. And if that is like kind of an older thing too, then it doubly makes sense for that pronunciation yeah. to appear in something said in 1946. Right. Um, using salt water to cook with is interesting. Makes me wonder if beyond the restrictions of World War II, if that was a Southern British thing. My great-grandmother, who lived in Brighton, used to go down to the beach, get a cup of salt water, toddle back to the house, and use it on her vegetable garden. She huh. had some of the biggest vegetables around. Used to say the nutrients from the sea were great to use. I could see that, potentially. Yeah. Because uh, nitrates and stuff are in, like, fertilizer. Mm -hmm. And so I assume there may be some stuff in seawater that, I don't know. I, I could be, they also could be complete, like, a you know, a wise yeah. tale, like a completely made up nonsense. <laughs> um, but the cooking thing is interesting. I am actually surprised that I feel like I've never really heard about and maybe I'm just completely ignorant on it, but I've never really heard like people talking about when I like 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 watching cooking stuff or 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 cooking history stuff or anything, which I actually watch a fair amount of. I've never seen anybody from my memory talk about people using seawater to cook. Yeah, like other than by necessity, right. like you know what I mean. Like right. obviously, if that's all you have, you would use it. But like I've never seen somebody like talk about how they like preferred using seawater because it was already salt you know what i mean like mm -hmm. i don't know which is interesting because you would think yeah like why wouldn't you not like you don't have to salt it then you just have and if you're boiling it you know you boil out you know the stuff that would be harmful probably yeah i don't know it's just interesting yeah that is interesting because yeah i would think that would be something that had a lot of historical yeah. precedent and yeah like i said it just surprised me that i'd never really heard of it so mm. well if you can't toddle down to the beach and get a cup of salt water <laughs> yeah Store-bought is fine. Yes. Juniper is in gin. When me and the missus made our own gin in one of the country's oldest distilleries, they were saying all gin has to have juniper, otherwise it's not considered okay, gin. I thought so. And believe us, we need our gin and tonics. <laughs> if the Germans had deprived us of that, I'm pretty sure Guernsey, Jersey, and White and all the other aisles would have violently thrown them <laughs> off the aisles. Uh, but why is the gin gone? <laughs> 
Over on Twitter, we had one vote for the movie and one for the book. Kelly Napier said, I didn't read the book, but my mom did a few years ago, and she watched the movie with me last week, so I'm her proxy vote. My mom said she preferred the book to the movie because she liked that it got more in-depth on the stories of all the characters and not just the romance between Dawsey and Juliet. Fantastic. This is, I will say, and I mean this with all the love and no offense meant, the most mom movie i've ever seen one of the most mom coded yes books and movies yes ever... very very mom coded you're correct on <laughs> my that. mom would adore this film your mom would really book. like this yeah. we should probably recommend <laughs> yes, it to her absolutely um, and on instagram we had two votes for the movie and four for the book uh anal fracture 42 said i don't care for romances sorry but i liked the angle of how war affected these people specifically your discussion was great thank you and it's you know you're not you don't have to like romances that's fine yeah. that's just fine um, so our winner overall was the movie by a slim hair with seven votes to the book six wow that's i know I, I, I could see that like i said i not that doesn't surprise me that much but all right we have an awful lot to talk about in uh our preview of thunderball so we're going to get into that first by discussing thunderball the book james bond is in operation and what an operator he is in ian fleming's Thunderbolt. Have you seen everything you came to see? Go back to your friends and report. Tell them the little fish I throw back into the sea. Thunderbolt stars Claudine Auger. Young, beautiful, trapped. Could be dangerous. What sharp little eyes you've got. Wait till you get to my teeth. Thunderball is a 1961 novel written by Ian Fleming, Kevin McClory, and Jack Whittingham, although the latter two were originally uncredited. More on that in a minute. <laughs> a Thunderball is the ninth book in Ian Fleming's James Bond series, and it is the eighth full-length Bond novel. Um, a short story collection for your eyes only predates this novel by a year. Interesting. Um, as with the previous novels in the series, aspects of Thunderball come from Fleming's own experiences. Uh, for anyone who does not know, he yeah. worked for Britain's Naval Intelligence Division during the Second World War, um, and he was involved in the planning and oversight of two intelligence units. Um, so he had insider information. Yes. Um, these similarities include everything from like specific moments within the story to names of characters that were taken from people he had known. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the characters in particular that the names that feels like a wild thing to do to me but maybe like first names <laughs> I yeah guess. maybe yeah <laughs> um thunderball was generally well received by critics um francis isles wrote in the guardian um quote it is good tough it is a good tough straightforward thriller on perfectly conventional lines uh, from the Washington Post, Harold Neeland said that Thunderball was, quote, not top Fleming, but still well ahead of the of the pack. Um, and I had to include this quote from a reviewer who did not like the book. <laughs> a critic for the Daily Herald said, quote, hey, that man is taking his clothes off again. So is the girl. 
Can anybody <laughs> stop this? Unfortunately not. Not this side of the bestseller lists. I don't envy Mr. Bond's wealthy creator, <laughs> Ian Fleming. I wish I could pity him. That's such an interesting review. Oh, I man. just thought that was funny. It's funny. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about the IP issue oh, in the yeah, room. this is something. Um, IP, uh, intellectual property, mm -hmm. for anyone who does not immediately recognize that acronym. This is the reason that we don't have a learning thing segment this yes. week. It's because there's a mini learning things yes. in, the, in our, our book notes. Yeah. Um, so basically I've got a timeline here of what happened with the, the uh, publication of this book. Mm -hmm. So in mid 1958, um, Ian Fleming and his friend Ivar Bryce started talking about the possibility of them writing a Bond film. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, at this point, there had been other Bond movies. No, there had not. No, but they were at least in the process of making one. No. Yes? No. No? No, no, no. So, so Thunderball was meant to be the first Bond movie, and because of these issues, it did not, it was not the first. They ended up doing one of his, some of his other novels, first okay. the first bond movie is doctor, doctor no, no in 1962 okay i must have looked at the wrong date for that then because i thought that doctor no came out like close enough to this that it would have had to have been in pre-production 1962 uh no so my understanding of the situation uh, with four years you know in 1958 four years the production time on movies back then was not that long it was like a year usually um i see i can look really quick and see when I probably looked at when the novel was published. I can see when, when try to out. see when Doctor No went into production. Um, I mean, it's it's not a big deal. I'm just no, wrong. I know, but <laughs> yeah. So again, initially they wanted to produce Thunderball as the first film, but because of what we're about to talk about, they couldn't. So they ended up doing Doctor No first. Okay. Um, so in this case, there had not been any other films at, at 1958 at this point in the story. Okay, so they so they started talking about the possibility of writing yes. one. Okay. Um, so later than that year, Bryce introduced Fleming to a young Irish writer and director named Kevin McClory, uh, and the three of them, um, together with their other friend, Ernest Cuneo, uh, formed the partnership Xanadu Productions. Uh, that was my understanding is that that was what they called it, but they never actually yeah, like that's formalized what it, said when it I was reading too, yeah. into a, like an LLC or, or whatever. Yeah. I started doing this research and then we decided to switch who was doing the book and the movie. Cause we always do. Yeah. The, the, sometimes I, I do. we do. Almost always. I don't know if I've ever done a book. Have I ever done a book's learning thing or preview? We do that occasionally on Switch episodes. Okay. Not every time. But very often on Switch episodes, even if I'm reading, we still, because yeah. with the format of like what we put in, it's just easier for us to do. Anyway, so I had started doing this research, so I know some of this. And yeah, that was what I read is that Xanadu, that was not like an official company that was yeah. just like what they called their, yeah. This was, is this was the name of their club. In the same way that I have uh, It's Something to Do Productions when I was in college, which was me <laughs> and my friends making short films, which was not a real company. Yeah. Oh, so then in May 1959, Fleming, Bryce, Cuneo, and McClory um, first met at Bryce's Essex house um, and then at McClory's London home as they came up with this story outline. And then over the next few months, the story changed and there ended up being like 10 different outlines, treatments, and scripts of this story. Mm -hmm. So Fleming had initially wanted to work with McClory 
because McClory's film The Boy and the Bridge was the official British entry to the 1959 Venice Film Festival. So he was like impressed by that. Uh Um, However, that film kind of flopped. It was poorly received. Um, And then as a result of that, Fleming became disenchanted with McClory. Right. He was like, "Ah, I don't know about this guy. It's interesting because it made made me want to know if McClory... Or if if Fleming had seen the film mm-hmm. or if he just knew like if he had seen the film and liked it or if he had just known that this guy wrote a movie that's like the Britain selection for the Venice Film Festival and was like impressed by that and was like, oh, let's work. I'll work yeah. with them because if it's the f- former or if it's the latter uh that's understandable like oh he just heard like oh this guy's like a talented filmmaker and right. then when the movie like actually comes out and critics are like this sucks or whatever he's like oh never mind <laughs> but it, and and if he saw it at that point and then was like oh this sucks but if he had seen the movie and was like this is great and then it came out and got bad reviews and he's like wait never mind i'm like oh come on man be your own person <laughs> like what uh, that's but anyways, I, and I don't know which of those is. Yeah, the, the I don't truth. know which it is. I maybe he just didn't want like a stinky flop name connected sure. to his property. Maybe, maybe so. Uh, anyway, um, by October 1959, Fleming was then spending much less time on this project. Um, so McClory ended up bringing in screenwriter Jack Whittingham to help work on it. Mm-hmm. Um, In December, then, Fleming met with McClory and Whittingham for a script conference. um, And then shortly after, they sent Fleming a script uh, called Longitude 78 West, which Fleming liked. He thought it was good, but he changed the title to Thunderball. Yes. Thunderball. Which I don't know what the title Thunderball means yet. I do. But I will say that I think it's a better better title than Longitude 78 West. Well, you'll find out in the movie notes what that title means. I am looking forward to it. Uh, okay, so then January 1960, McClory visits Fleming's home um, where Fleming explains to him his intention of delivering the screenplay to MCA uh, with a recommendation that McClory act as producer. Okay, so that's where we're at at this point. Then Fleming writes the novel Mm -hmm. Thunderball from January to March of 1960 based on this screenplay. Yeah. So this is almost our first time doing a novelization, kind of. Kind of. Yeah. (laughs) Kind of a novelization. Kind of a novelization, yeah. Um, And then in March of 1961, McClory read an advance copy of the book. Okay. So an advance copy, that's not like something that the writer sent. Like, that's not like a draft that Fleming sent to McClory. That's like, it's published. Yeah. Or it's It's about to be, it's about to be printed. Yeah. Here's like the cheaply made copy that we send out to reviewers. So he reads an advanced copy of the book and then McClory and Whittingham immediately petitioned the high court in London for an injunction to stop publication over plagiarism. Because he did not credit them as writers on this book. Um, So the plagiarism case was heard in March of 1961 um, and it allowed the book to be published, although the door was left open for McClory to pursue further action at a later date um which he did and then in november of 1963 
the case McClory v. Fleming was heard um, at the Chancery Division of the High Court. I have no idea what any of just that means. Written, your stuff all just, sounds it's made just up. Just details, and it sounds made up. It sounds made up. It does. Full offense. Yeah, <laughs> it I up. will fully offend the the Brits <laughs> listening. The Chancery <laughs> Division of the High Court. Game of Thrones shit. Come on. <laughs> uh, the case lasted three weeks. Um, during which time Fleming was quite unwell. Uh, he had actually had a heart attack during that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then under advice from his friend Bryce, he offered a deal to McClory and they settled out of court. Um, so McClory gained the literary and film rights to this for the screenplay while Fleming was given the rights to the novel, although it had to be recognized as based on a screen treatment by Kevin McClory, Jack Whittingham, and the author. Yes. So those were the the stipulations of their settlement. And on that settlement, um, Fleming ultimately ultimately admitted, quote, that the novel reproduces a substantial part of the copyrighted material in the film scripts, that the novel makes use of a substantial number, number of the incidents and material in the film scripts, and that there is a general similarity of the story of the novel and the story as set out in the said film scripts. Um, And then on the 12th of August, 1964, nine months later, Fleming suffered another heart attack and died at age 56. So it killed him. So being accused of plagiarism killed killed Ian Fleming. Fleming. And it was definitely not like the the chain smoking and probably alcohol. Yes. (laughs) It was definitely the plagiarism accusation. Um, So what makes this such a huge deal um aside from the obviously like like the plagiarism ip implications of it well part of it was that thunderball was the first appearance of bond crime syndicate specter am i saying that right yeah specter cool um which is an acronym that stands for special executive for counterintelligence terrorism revenge and extortion Uh uh-huh which I love the inclusion of revenge in. Yeah. They're the bad guys. I, yes. They're, <laughs> they are the bad guys. Right. Um, and that might not have been like a huge, huge deal, except that Spectre had already made an appearance in the first Bond film that we mentioned earlier, 1962's Dr. No, mm-hmm. which it did obviously did not appear in the novel of the same name, which predated this whole hullabaloo. Yes. So thus it had become part of the film canon. So at this point, it really mattered who owned that intellectual property and both McClory and Fleming claimed to have come up with the concept and characters. Um, So because the literary rights stayed with Fleming, um, continuation author John Gardner was able to use Spectre in a number of his novels um, its use in future films was a little more complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1963, um, Eon Productions made an agreement with McClory to adapt the novel into the fourth James Bond film, um, also stipulating that McClory would not be allowed to make further adaptations of Thunderball for at least 10 years after the release. Um, although Spectre was used in a number of films before and after Thunderball, the issue of the copyright of Thunderball prevented Spectre from becoming the main villains in 1977's The Spy Who Loved Me. Um, and then in 1983, McClory released a film based on his 
Bond writes. This is my favorite part to of Thunderball. the whole story. Um, and he called his movie Never Say Never Again. Yep. Do you want to know the best thing about that? Tell me. It stars Sean Connery. It's just a James <laughs> Bond movie. It's just another version of Thunderball. It's incredible. I remember watching that as a kid and not... I've watched all the James Bond movies as a kid because um, uh, my dad was a fan of them. And I, I never realized... Like, I had no idea, obviously, mm-hmm. at the time that that was just, like, a weird remake of... <laughs> of thunderball basically but it stars sean connery and it is just the same movie again but different it's very interesting incredible um there were also some issues with the 2015 bond film titled specter uh, which resulted in a formal settlement between mgm and the mcclory estate um, to allow them to use specter Mm -hmm. and it has been suggested that as part of that settlement of uh, specter as an acronym was discarded. Um, and the organization, I, this is what it says on Wikipedia and the, the, the specter acronym was discarded and the organization reimagined as specter. No caps. Yes. So no capitals. It's just the yes, word specter. Just the word it's specter, not an acronym, not an acronym. It's the name of the organization. Yeah. Yes. That's my understanding. Yeah. Um, so, so that's it. That's that's the whole kerfluffle. It's fascinating. It's uh, I remember I started reading that. And I was like, wait till it. And then we once we decided to switch and you did a little book thing. I was like, oh, you're gonna have fun with this one. This is a whole thing. It's a whole ass thing. Very interesting, though. All right, that is all you need to know about Thunderball the book. Let's learn now a little bit about Thunderball the film. 007. Danger sign for the world's most famous gentleman agent with a license to kill and license to thrill. 007, guarantee sign of prompt delivery, night and day service. Ravishing redheads, bronze brunettes, honey blondes, the Bond women 007 style. Thunderball is a 1965 film and the fourth in the James Bond in uh, series of films directed by Terrence Young, who did Dr. No uh, from Russia with Love and then Wait Until Dark, which is a non James Bond film. Uh, but he did three James Bond films, Dr. No from Russia with Love. He missed whatever the third one was that I can't recall. Was it was it Goldfinger? Yes, he didn't do Goldfinger. We actually have a note about that later, I think. Um, didn't do Goldfinger, and then they brought him back for Thunderball. Uh, and it was written by Richard May- Maybaum, who did Dr. No from Russia with Love and basically every other James Bond film from the start until 1989's License to Kill. And he also wrote the 1949 version of The Great Gatsby mm. and wrote, I think, additional dialogue or something for Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. So Interesting. Uh, John Hopkins who wrote a TV show called Z Cars, Murder by Decree, and Hiroshima, and Jack Whittingham, who you had mentioned earlier, who wrote Never Say Never Again. uh, And then, obviously, there is a story credit to Kevin McClory and uh, Ian Fleming. The film stars Sean Connery, Claudine Auger, dubbed by Nikki Vanderzil, Adolfo Seeley, dubbed by Robert Rietti, Luciana Luciana Paluzzi, uh, Rick Van Neuter, Guy Dolman, Molly Beaters, dubbed by Barbara Jefford, 
Martine Beswick, Bernard Lee, Desmond Lu- Llewellyn, and Luis Maxwell. Or Lewis Maxwell. I can't remember if that's a man or a one. one of the, I think it's Lewis Maxwell. Yes, it is Lewis Maxwell because that's Q, I think. The film has an 85% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 64 on Metacritic, and a 6.9 nice out of 10 on IMDb. <laughs> I mean, come on. The film won one Oscar for Best Effects, Best Special oh, I'm Effects. I'm so excited. Uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, it's mainly it's not like you know, it's like best visual effects, since because there's a lot right. of like kind of like impressive underwater photography mm. and stuff like that because. We'll get into it. The film made a hundred and forty-one point two million against a budget of just nine million. Mm, not too shabby. Huge success. So, as Katie mentioned, there were all kinds of legal disputes over this project uh, that was originally intended to be the first Bond film, and those legal disputes were not fully resolved until twenty fifteen with Spectre, as Katie mentioned. Roughly one quarter of this film is made up of underwater scenes. And Thunderball was the first James Bond film shot in widescreen Panavision and the first to have a runtime over two hours. So quite a few actresses were considered for the prized Bond girl role of Domino Derville. Uh, and some what of those names. Yeah, well, if you, I know, I'm okay. aware. <laughs> I'm aware. <laughs> That's the whole deal. Um, some some other actresses that were uh, considered for the role include Julie Christie after her performance as Billy, or, or after her performance in Billy Liar. Uh, Raquel Welch was considered after her cover shoot for Life magazine, and Faye Dunaway was also close to signing for the part, but none of them ended up being in the role. They also looked at a very large list of unknown European actresses and models before finally landing on former Miss France, Claudine Auger or Auger. I mean, it's it's French. So I it's... imagine it's Auger, but I don't know. Uh, so when the cast uh, when when they actually cast Claudine in this role, the script was rewritten to make her character French rather than Italian. Mm. Although ultimately her lines were dubbed over by Nikki Vanderzil, who voiced actually several Bond girls over the course of her career, including Honey Ryder and most of the women in Dr. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and in fu- a bunch of other movies. The Marnie Nixon of Bond girls. Yes. Uh, the girl who was painted gold and Goldfinger. She did the voice of <laughs> uh, a bunch of other ones. It's actually really interesting. She actually just passed away in 2021. But yeah, Nikki Vanderzil did the voice of like a ton of Bond girls in the early Bond films. Hmm. Um, because sometimes they were uh, they didn't speak English like well yeah. enough for depending on the movie and stuff. And then other times it was just because some of them, they did speak English like she did lines for um, she did some lines for uh, I can't remember which film it is, um, but had uh, Jane Seymour mm-hmm. is in it as like a Bond girl. And she did some of her lines, which Jane Seymour and it, yeah. t- it does say some of like some lines for Jane Seymour. So she did most of her lines. <laughs> um, but and obviously Jane Seymour speaks english english (laughs) like anyways the point being that she just yeah she was like their go-to if they needed somebody to if they needed to dub over lines for uh women characters in the early bond films it was nikki vanderzil so guy hamilton who directed goldfinger was asked back to direct this film thunderball but he declined because he was worn out and quote creatively drained from working on goldfinger so instead, they decided to bring back Terrence Young, who, as I mentioned earlier, had done the first two films, Dr. No and From Russia With Love. Uh, widely regarded as probably like two of the two best James Bond films, maybe, mm-hmm. other than Modern Bond, probably. Especially From Russia With Love is like, 
I think most people consider that like maybe argue and Goldfinger. Eh, I don't know. They're all pretty good. Those early ones. So after reading the script, Sean Connery uh, was apparently very worried about a sequence there where he had to be near some sharks in Largo's pool. Largo is one of the characters in the film. And so he talked to the production designer and had him add this plexiglass partition to the pool. Mm -hmm. Uh, But apparently one of the sharks still managed to make it an escape through or around the plexiglass. And Connery had to flee the pool uh, in in mortal peril, (laughs) supposedly. (laughs) It's the rumor, at least. Were the Uh, sharks hungry? I don't know. Who knows any of this? This They filmed this in the 60s. This could all be made up. So uh, the climactic underwater battle sequence was filmed at Clifton Pier and the choreography was done by Rico Browning, uh, who is most known for his work on Creature from the Black Lagoon, Mm. where he actually played Gilman, Gilman, who is the The creature creature from the Black Lagoon (laughs) in all of the underwater scenes Uh uh, and is very well known uh, during this time period as like an underwater cinematography, like expert Mm. actor director Guru. kind of yeah he yeah. just he's, he knows how to film stuff underwater and what how to do stuff underwater it's like Good kind of his him. whole thing um which a name like riku i feel like is a great it's kind of like jacques you know like i feel yeah. like jacques Cousteau, riku browning has a similar like energy to it <laughs> <laughs> so um while in nassau during the final shooting days and i believe this is an imdb trivia no this is I can't remember where I found this. During the final days of shooting, uh, special effects supervisor John Steers was apparently supplied experimental rocket fuel in order to blow up Largo's yacht. Mm. Uh, and apparently he kind of didn't really know the the true potential of this volatile liquid that they gave him. I don't know where he got it from. Uh, and so he doused the entire yacht with this. And then when they blew it up, it, the explosion was so massive that it shattered windows along Bay Street in Nassau, roughly 30 miles away. Oh, my God. Uh, he would go on to win an Academy Award for this work. Oh, good. <laughs> good. Let's let's reward incompetence. Yes. Uh, yeah, that was the one Oscar this movie got was for the effects. So uh, another fun fact, on June 26th of 2013, Christie's Auction House would sell the Breitling SA Top Time watch that James Bond wore in this film for over $100,000. The original title song for this film was called, uh, was entitled Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which I didn't realize maybe that's where that comes from. Uh, The movie Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, great Mm -hmm. movie. Uh, I I assume maybe that's where this comes from. Sorry, no, I, I remember... But I see. So the song title came from an Italian journalist who, in 1962, called James Bond "Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang" mm-hmm. as like a, a playful, you know, yeah, numb to or nomenclature, whatever. Um, and so I'm assuming the movie "Kiss Kiss Bang Bang" is comes from this that sort of yeah, thing. Maybe. I would imagine. I don't know. Uh, but so the title theme was written by Barry and Leslie Bracusi. Uh, and the song was originally recorded, recorded by Shirley Basie, but they realized late that the track was too short for the titles. Mm. <laughs> and Basie was uh, no longer available at that point. So it later got re-recorded by Dionne Warwick with a longer instrumental part at the beginning to kind of like fill the time mm-hmm. to, to, to match the credits. Um, and her version ended up not being released till the nineties because that song was removed from the title credits after the producers, Broccoli and Saltzman worried that the theme song for a James Bond film wouldn't work if the song did not have the title of the film in the lyrics, which famously uh, like every okay. 
almost every <laughs> James Bond movie does. Yeah. Especially the older ones. I think the newer ones, they might have gotten away from that. Maybe. Maybe not. I don't know. I thought there might be one. I think Casino Royale's theme song does not have Casino Royale in it. Skyfall famously does, because mm-hmm. Skyfall <laughs> by Adele. But uh, there are some other ones that don't have it. But at this point, all of them had had the, the name of the song or the name of the movie in the, the lyrics of the song. So, uh, Barry, uh, what was his name? Barry Bacusi then teamed up with Don Black, who was a lyricist, and they wrote Thunderball, uh, which was sung by Tom Jones, uh, who, according to the Bond production, or according to legend, uh, supposedly fainted in the recording booth while singing the song's final note. (laughs) Jones would say of it, quote, I closed my eyes and I held the note for so long, when I opened my eyes, the room was spinning. (laughs) Wow. quote. Uh, some other fun facts. The jetpack that makes an appearance in the film is a real functional jetpack. It is Bell's rocket belt uh, that was primarily used for like exhibitions like mm-hmm. the Super Bowl and the World's Fair and stuff. And I actually saw one of these fly at an air show when I was a kid. I remember mm. going to a St. Louis air show, um, which St. Louis had a pretty renowned air show for a long time, at least from my memory, uh, that we would go to pretty often in the summer when I was a child. And I remember seeing... I'm pretty sure I remember seeing in one of the early ones uh, this Bell rocket belt fly and blowing my little kid mind. Uh, So you asked what Thunderball meant. You're wondering what Thunderball could possibly mean. Uh, Thunderball is a military term that was used by U.S. soldiers uh, back mainly, I think primarily back in like World War II and stuff to describe the mushroom cloud that you could see during the testing of atomic bombs Hmm. called that like the, the mushroom cloud. They called it a Thunderball. So uh, there's a Vulcan bomber in this film that's like a mock-up. It's like a fake plane or whatever that they use. Um, I don't remember. The, I haven't seen this movie in since I was a little kid, so I remember like nothing about it. But apparently, I guess this this thing ends up crashing into the ocean or something. But they actually, on uh, the production team, ended up blowing this this mock-up of this plane up with dynamite uh, so that other f- films wouldn't try to use it, basically. <laughs> Uh, and they left the framework behind in the ocean, and it has since become a reef. Hmm. So, <laughs> supposedly. Uh, there's a character in the film called Count Lippa, Lippe. I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, but he is apparently a reference to one of Ian Fleming's old friends from his days in the intelligence uh, or mm. as an intelligence offer. He was friends with Prince Bernard of the Netherlands. Mm. Uh, and he was born, uh, that, that prince was born, Bernard von Lippe Biesterfeld. And so it was a reference to him, which Ian <laughs> Fleming thought was delightful. Uh, it's rumored that the Royal Navy engineer uh, or that Royal Navy engineers approached the producers of the film to ask them how they had designed this little mini rebreather. So in the film, there's apparently I think it's one of the gadgets Bond gets or something. Yeah, there's a little rebreather and a rebreather is a thing that allows you to breathe underwater without like an oxygen tank. It yeah. basically recycles air or whatever. Uh, famously, like for maybe our generation, the little things that, um, although it's alien technology, who, so who knows, but in, uh, episode one, the Phantom Menace, Obi-Wan like swims down to the Gungan world using like a little Mm -hmm. like breather thing. It's kind of like the same idea. So this, this Royal Navy engineer came to them was like, how did you guys do that? 
because uh, he had been working, this engineer had been working on something similar, but couldn't figure out how to crack it. And uh, it was devastated when the producers of the film told him the secret is that it works as long as the the actor can hold their breath because it's just it's fake. It's, it's just not. A it's just a prop. He, this guy, this engineer, <laughs> yeah. thought they had really invented a mini <laughs> rebreather. Supposedly, yes. Again, who knows how true any of this is, but it's supposedly. Uh, so the the famous James Bond gun barrel sequence that opens every James Bond film uh, in this one. This is the first time that the actor actually portraying Bond did that opening hmm. uh, before this. I guess it had been like a, some random stunt person or whatever. Some just some random actor. Um, so this is the first time that it's actually Sean Connery doing that, that, uh, and it's also apparently the first time in franchise history where the dot then opens up to reveal the first scene in the story, which in my mind is like a quintessential part of every James Bond movie. You get the opening song, you get, he turns, he shoots the camera, the gun barrel, blood comes down, it opens up and then we're on like our first scene or whatever. Hmm. Uh, but apparently this is the first time. So the first three didn't do it. So getting into some reviews, uh, and these are contemporary view reviews from when the film came out. Dillis Powell of the Sunday Times said upon seeing the film, quote, the cinema was a duller place before two or 007. Uh, David Robinson, writing for the Financial Times, criticized the appearance of Sean Connery and his effectiveness to play Bond, saying, quote, it's not just that Sean Connery looks a lot more haggard and less heroic than he did two or three years ago, but there is much less effort to establish him as a connoisseur playboy. Apart from the offhanded order for, for Beluga, there is little of that comic display of Bon Viver manship that was once of the charms of Connery's almost a gentleman 007. Uh, which is funny because hmm. Connery would continue to play 007 for a couple well, more that's films. That's kind of rude. For a few more films. That, that's that's the thing. Everybody, that's like for everybody's favorite thing to criticize about the Bond movies is how good at being Bond is the current Bond person. Uh -huh. It's like the it's like what everybody likes to talk about. Uh, writing for the New York Times, Bosley Crowther uh, said the film was humorous and that it was uh, and that it's previous or sorry, that it was more hu humorous than its previous installments, saying, quote, Thunderball is pretty, too, and it is filled with such underwater action as would delight Captain Jacques-Yves Cousteau. Uh, he would go on to praise the principal actors and write, quote, The color is handsome. The scenery in the Bahamas is an irresistible lure. Even the violence is funny. That's the best I can say for a Bond film, end quote. Uh, kind of more critically, Variety felt Thunderball was, quote, tight, exciting. Uh, sorry, not critically. That's the next one. Uh, a variety, writing for Variety, uh, they, they would say, quote, Thunderball was a tight, exciting melodrama in which novelty of action figures importantly, end quote. Uh, mm. I assume the novelty of action being the underwater yes, climax yeah, of the yeah. film. Uh, and then a little more critically, Philip K. Schur, writing for uh, the Los Angeles Times, said, quote, it is the same as its predecessors, only more too much of everything. Sorry, it's written awkwardly. Yeah, it is the same weird. as its predecessors, only more too much of everything. From sudden desire to sudden desire. The submarine sequences are as pretty as can be in Technicolor, featuring featuring besides fish and flip... <laughs> just this, you write like a fuck. I hate you, Philip K. Sure. <laughs> the submarine sequences are as pretty as can be in Technicolor, Featuring, besides fish and flippered bipeds, all sorts of awesome diving bells and powered sea sleds, not to mention an arsenal of lethal spear guns. If I could have just known more than half of the time what precisely they were doing, the effect could have been prettier yet. Uh, which is a common uh, criticism that I saw in some of the reviews of this film is that 
yeah, it's a good, but the the kind of big underwater fight scenes at the end, a little hard to tell what the hell mm-hmm. is happening, which for my memory as a child, this was never my favorite of the movies because of those reasons. I liked, I thought the underwater parts were fun, yeah. but I also remember being like, what is happening? Oh. <laughs> like, I, it's just like random hmm. people in scuba suits doing stuff. And a lot of times I remember thinking it was hard to keep track of what was happening. Uh, but I was also like not yeah. watching this. Well, so I guess I'll be the judge of that. Yeah, we shall um, see. Yeah, I and I mentioned this, I think, at the end of our last episode. I have never seen a Bond movie. Yes. I, I have very little uh, context coming into this. I'm under, I was under the impression that too much of everything was just like how Bond films were done. Yes, that I would say yes, that is yes. Generally speaking, um, I am a little disappointed that this will be your first introduction only because it's not for my memory. Thunderball is fine. Uh, it's just not the best of like the early Bond. Again, I would I would have gone with From Russia with Love or probably Doctor No. Maybe um, they're all have their issues in mm-hmm. lots of different ways. Um, but they, I again, I was I loved them as a kid. I I was a huge fan. I thought there were tons of fun. Um, probably who knows if I should have been watching them or not. But <laughs> my guess, parents were actually I guess fairly we'll find out. My parents were actually fairly moderately strict about like what I watched, but for whatever reason, James Bond movies, I guess because my dad liked them so much or yeah. whatever, was just like we watched all of them when I was fairly young. I say for, I I don't know how old I was, but I probably I was under ten. I feel yeah. like when I watched these, um, which is you know stuff your parents like always gets a pass. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So. Uh, this one, actually, if you want to do us a favor, you can head over to social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do all that stuff. Uh, who cares? Uh, if you want to really support us, head over to patreon.com slash this film is lit. You can give us some money there. And if you support us at $15 a month, you get access, uh, to priority recommendations, which this one is, it is a patron request by Vic vicious, Vic vicious. And Vic vicious has teased us saying, that they will reveal why, or maybe to at least to some extent, why they chose Thunderball of yeah. all the James Bond films for us to do. But they have not revealed that reason yet. They said so, it's a personal reason. More to come. More to come. We hope. We hope. We'll see. But thank you, Vic Vicious, for requesting this. Excited to talk about it. Perry, uh, Katie, where can people watch Thunderball? Um, well, you can check with your local library uh, or a local video rental store if you've still got one of those. Um, if not, you can stream this with a subscription uh, to Fubo, MGM Plus, or Direct TV. There's an MGM Plus. There's one for everything. I know, now. but this is literally the first time I feel like I've seen MGM Plus. I don't Plus. know. <sighs> um, or you can rent it for around four bucks from Amazon, Apple TV, YouTube, Voodoo, or Redbox. Etcetera. Um, there you go. It's a good time, I think, to che- be checking with your your local library. And, oh yeah, hundred um, percent feels positive. I feel likely that yeah. this would be collecting dust on a shelf in your local library. Our library actually has it. I checked; they have it on Blu-ray. Oh, well, let's get it. Yeah. Are you getting it? Yeah, I'll get it. But yeah. Okay. There we go. Let's <laughs> say, especially if it's on Blu-ray. If it was on DVD, I'd be like, eh, maybe we'll just rent it. But if it's on Blu-ray, absolutely, let's get that. I'm excited. I have not watched an old Bond movie in over a decade i don't remember the last time i watched an old bond movie it must have been and obviously we know you never have but i it must have been back in college at the at the most recent and even that i'm not 100 Mm -hmm. sure um but they were a large part of my childhood so i am interested to revisit and see uh what i think now because it's been a long time so 
that's gonna do it for this prequel episode come back in one week's time we're talking about thunderball until that time guys gals non-binary pals everybody else keep reading books watching movies and and keep keep being awesome. awesome